A terrible existence. After a while, the train stopped. When the doors opened, we were let out into an area surrounded by forest. Standing there were Ukrainian guards, SS soldiers, and other men dressed in civilian clothes. Right away, the Ukrainians hit people and they were shooting. I think a few people died or were killed right there. Then some people were taken away, while the rest of us were divided into groups and marched into a camp where Jewish police and Ukrainians were waiting for us. I would learn later that the Ukrainians were part of the Werkschutz, the factory security service, and were mainly the ones who guarded these camps along with a few Germans. They wore black uniforms, carried rifles, and were like any security force, except that they used to shoot and kill people. The first thing I noticed was that a lot of people in the camp seemed yellow. Their clothes were yellow, their hair was yellow, and their skin was yellow. We didn't know where we were, but found out soon enough that it was a working camp called Skarżysko Kamienna, and the work was in factories. The Polish government had built the factories there before the war and had needed the forests as camouflage because those factories were used to make anti-aircraft ammunition, bombs, mines, and grenades. During the war, the factories were owned by the German arms manufacturing conglomerate Hasak. Hugo Schneider Aktiengesellschaft Metallenfabrik, in conjunction with some major banks, such as the Dresdner Bank and other banks. The Nazis had dozens of munitions factories like those at Skarzysko all across German-occupied Europe and used slave labor to make munitions and bombs for their war effort. The factories at Skarzysko are still there and in use today. Skarżysko was made up of three camps, or Werke as they were called, Werk A, Werk B, and Werk C. I was sent to Werk C, which was the worst camp in Skarżysko. It was the biggest one, with the most people in it, and the food rations were so small that starvation was a daily occurrence. The tempo of the work was unrelenting and continuous. Day shifts and night shifts without pause. And the foremen, Polish Gentiles and German supervisors and engineers, tried to have the work done as quickly as possible to reach the quotas the Nazis imposed. Most of them were cruel and their methods of trying to get people to work faster and faster were extremely harsh. If that wasn't bad enough, it was also the camp where people had to work with deadly chemicals, like picric acid. It was this chemical that turned the people who worked with it yellow. The picric acid and the other toxic chemicals used were so dangerous that protective clothing was needed to work with them. The Poles and the Germans who worked in the factories had this protection, and masks as well, but the Jews had only rags that they were given and the chemicals seeped through their skin and attacked their livers and lungs. If you were assigned to work in those 
Harlem, the buildings where they made ammunition with those chemicals, you were doomed. Between the scarcity of food, the unforgiving foreman, and the deadly chemicals they worked with, people depending on their constitutions would die within a few months coming to work in those Harlem. Thank God I was never anywhere near that work. But my cousin Michael arrived in Skarzysko's Verkse from the lodge ghetto while I was there. I had been at his wedding in 1938 when he married my paternal cousin Terenia, the second eldest daughter of my aunt Esther. They had already had a child when they were in the lodge ghetto. His wife and child were murdered either in Chelmno or Auschwitz. I am not sure which. Michael didn't last three months in Verkse. I didn't see him there often, but when I did, I noticed how swollen he was, and he died quite quickly. As soon as we got there, we were assigned to work groups, each of which was headed by a Jewish policeman. Again, Providence was with me. I was assigned to a group led by a man called Ketz. Our work was outside on the firing range, dismantling old ammunition, putting the gunpowder where we extracted from it in boxes, and then exploding the detonators. The first day, Katz asked all of us some questions, and when he came to me, he asked where I was from. When I answered Wuj, he said that he was from Wuj too and asked my name. He said he knew the Gute family from Wuj. The next day, or the day after, Katz mentioned that his wife was ill and lying in the police barracks. These Jewish policemen lived in special barracks and were allowed to have their wives and families with them there. He told me that he wanted me to take care of her. I suppose he had made sure I was assigned to the day shift. He informed me that when I came back from the day's work, I was to go to the police barracks and look after her. For doing that, he would make sure I got some extra food. He kept his promise. When he was dishing out the soup, he would give me a ladeful from the bottom, where there was usually more substance as opposed to the top. There was only watery liquid. And he also gave me an extra piece of bread. Katz's wife was dying of tuberculosis, and I became her nurse. I washed her, and I cleaned her when she soiled herself, and I did whatever she needed. She lasted for about five or six months. And even after his wife died, Katz continued to be nice to me. I was never moved from his workroom to any other, even though the authorities were always moving people from one work group to another as needed. The internal administration of the camp was made up entirely of the Jewish prisoners who had been at Skarzysko for a long time and had come from the surrounding towns and countryside. When these prisoners were brought to the camp, they had been able to bring items in with them. Then they became the prominenter, the elite and intelligentsia of the camp. They had more privileges than the rest of us, like separate barracks and more to eat, and some even managed somehow to get hold of food and were cooking and selling it. 
Obviously, they had money hidden somewhere and were bartering with the Ukrainians and the Poles or smuggling things in from people they knew on the outside from before the war. People were searched on arrival at the camp. Their belongings were taken away. But there were always those who had ways and means as in the Warsaw Ghetto. The majority of us were starving. And then there was an upper crust of people who knew how to take care of themselves. Their lives seemed like paradise to us because they had plenty of food and other things and they had family members with them. The rest of the prisoners felt an enormous amount of anger and jealousy against these people, but I didn't really feel this myself. At that point, I wasn't thinking in terms of good or bad. I was imprisoned in my own mind, only thinking of surviving from one minute to the next. I knew only that I had to cling to cats who was good to me. But even I saw how brutal the other Jewish policemen were, and cats too, and how they would hit people with clubs and rubber truncheons without any thought or remorse. The head of the internal administration of Verkse was a Jewish woman by the name of Fela Markovichova. She was the only woman who had a commandant position in the camp. She had developed relationships with the factory management and camp authorities. She knew how to bribe the Germans and the Ukrainians to allow her to rule the administration of the camp as she saw fit. She put her family into positions of power, appointing one brother-in-law as the commander of the Jewish police and another in charge of supplies. I know her mother was at the camp as well and given many privileges. The family had a barracks all to themselves, and she held court there. Markovichova was not a nice woman. She was part of the destruction machine, the machine of death, and distributed all jobs for payment or by whim, ruling with an iron fist and going around with a whip that she had no problem using. She came from a Hasidic family, and before the war, she had been a teacher in a Hasidic school, but nothing in Skarzysko was black and white. Today, one can intellectualize and say that these people were only trying to survive and did what they could to save themselves and their families. But it is difficult to rationalize the way that the Jewish police and administration treated their fellow Jews. People suffered terribly and saw that others of their own kind were not suffering as they did and had a better lifestyle at their expense. One Jewish policeman, called Perechodnik, wrote a diary during the war. He was part of the Jewish police in the Otvotsk ghetto. Perechodnik died during the Warsaw Uprising in 1944 at the age of 27. His writings were published as his memoir long after the war in 1990s, and it is horrific to read how tormented this man was. He was not such a bad man, but he did awful things and couldn't forgive himself. He brought his own wife and only daughter to the deportation square because the Germans had promised him that his family would be safe. But the Nazis betrayed him, 
and his family were sent straight to Treblinka, where they were murdered. There were some Jewish policemen who really enjoyed their work and being cruel. There was one Jewish policeman who was in charge of the Umschlagplatz, the deportation square in Warsaw, and he collaborated not only to save his own life, but also because he liked the position of power that it gave him. I read about him after the war, and he was a psychopath, a terrible individual. When someone came to him and begged him to save them or their child, he would say, Don't ask me to help you. I have a job to run this place, according to the rules, and that's what it's going to be. At the Umstagplatz, there was a kind of medical clinic that the Germans set up with Jewish nurses and doctors. I suppose they were trying to fool people into thinking they were going to be taken care of. There was even an ambulance that could go in and out of the Umstagplatz with no trouble. And the men from the Judenrat in charge of it tried to save children and others by smuggling them out. But this Jewish policeman did everything in his power to stop him in the cruelest possible way. It is true that the Jewish police had to deliver a certain number of people a day to the Nazis, or else their own families would be taken. And it is true that they were promised that their families would be saved if they collaborated. But the irony is that, in the end, their families were murdered anyway, and I think that they should have known that. My father never trusted the Germans at all. Even with all the documents he got from Ralph Kroll, after the war, when the Nazis were asked at their trials, why, since they gave their word of honor, they had lied to the Jews, some said, Giving you word to a Jew didn't matter, because Jews don't count. They are vermin. It's different if I give my word to someone else. Giving you word to a Jew means nothing. How could a Jew have agreed to be a policeman and trust murderers of his people? There were many women in Skarzysko, in separate barracks, some of whom the Nazis used to do the dangerous work of screwing the explosives onto the two-centimeter anti-aircraft ammunition because women had more delicate fingers. On Sundays, when we didn't usually work and had free time, there were opportunities for men and women, prisoners, to get together. But as I have mentioned, men and women together did not register on me because I came from such a sheltered Hasidic home. If I saw girls and boys walking together and talking, it never occurred to me that anything but friendship was going on. Some of these women must also have had Polish boyfriends or even German ones, which didn't always work in their favor. It has been documented that some of the German foremen used to have parties where they would bring Jewish girls in and then shoot them afterwards because being with Jewish women was against the rules and they didn't want any witnesses. The manic nature of life in the camp had no limits. Despite the horror and death and cruelty all around us, Markovichova did allow the prisoners to engage in some cultural activities, and even supported the intellectuals and artists at Skarzysko. 
men and women would sing in concerts that were held in the camp and were allowed to observe the Yamim Tovim, the high holidays, while the authorities and the Jewish policemen looked the other way. There were also many small acts of resistance, as in the Warsaw Ghetto. Lots of life-affirming events were going on, while at the same time we were dying like flies. There was an infirmary at Skarzysko, a Krankenstube, but everyone knew not to go there. If you were sick, if you went to the infirmary, there was no guarantee you would come out alive. The nurses or doctors in the infirmary were Jewish, and for most part, absolutely awful. They didn't have much medication, and whatever supplies they did have were yours only if you had something of value you could barter or bribe them with. Unless you were local and had connections with the Poles, who could smuggle things into the camp, you didn't get much help at the infirmary. The male nurses worked closely with the Ukrainian guards, and from time to time, trucks would arrive and take all those in the infirmary who felt they were no longer useful into the forest to be shot. But the Nazis were always clever about this. The trucks would never stick to a routine and never came at the same day or time, or even every week. So you never knew when they would show up or if they had already been to the infirmary, the day or week you went looking for help. Knowing what happened to those who hoped for aid at the infirmary, people went to work even if they were deathly ill. The outside work I did on the firing range was much better than being inside the building with the chemicals. But still, we were all on the edge of death due to the hard work disease, and starvation. If we didn't die on our own, but looked really weak, the selections which were often every few weeks got rid of us. People who couldn't work anymore were taken to the forest, to the open pits, murdered there, and their bodies burned. Every night, trucks would come and take partisans, political prisoners, and others to the pits, which we used to call patelnia, the Polish word for frying pan, because of all the smoke and the fire. The pits were on the other side of the forest from the firing range where I worked, and we couldn't see the pits from there or what they were doing, but we did see the smoke and fire of the burning bodies. It was a horrific camp in other ways too. Unlike Majdanek, it was filthy. We were full of lice, and even though the authorities took us for disinfection once a month, they didn't give us new clothes afterwards. As soon as we put on our old clothes and went back to the barracks, where the straw in the bunks was also infested with lice, the lice came back in no time. There was a Jewish woman in charge of the storehouse, but she wouldn't give out new clothes unless you had some money or something of value to give her. Otherwise, you went without. Most people went without. Eventually, you would also lose your shoes one way or another, but you weren't given new ones to replace them. So we used the empty cement and chemical sacks as shoes and secured the sacks with wire to keep them on. That's how we walked, even in the winter snow. 
I saw a lot in Skarzysko that I've never spoken about. I can't talk about everything. There's so much that I experienced there, and this is only one example. Our barracks were built on stilts, not right on the ground. So the latrines were outside, like outhouses. They were built up rows of them where people sat next to each other, and underneath them there was all the smuck running out into pits on the open ground. There were so many people, and we had to do our business so quickly that a lot of the sewage collected in huge pools around the latrines. The pools of feces were large enough that people committed suicide by jumping into them. These poor people were skin and bones, and they knew their days were numbered, so rather than be shot, they jumped into these pools of feces. How do you end your suffering in a place like that? People found ways. Inevitably, from time to time, someone was chosen to clean up that sewage. Cats may have been my policemen, but didn't stop somebody else from grabbing me and saying that today I was going to do that. You had no choice. You had to do what they told you. I don't talk about this because it's so despicable to talk about. One cannot imagine what I see in my mind's eye when I think of that river of disgusting sewage flowing. It has left its mark and made me very conscious of cleanliness to this day. I rarely use public washrooms and I'm hyper-conscious of my hygiene. That is one of the loose ends left from my life in Skarzysko. It was a terrible existence, but you had to find ways of surviving, staying alive from moment to moment. One thing that kept me alive was my relationship with cats. I was luckier than most because cats made my life slightly better. He would tell me where the leftovers outside the police or administration barracks were placed after they ate, so I knew where to go and scavenge scraps of food like peels from potatoes and other vegetables. I would bring these back to my barracks to share with my best friend, Yakov, who was several years older than me. We looked after each other. In a camp, if you didn't have a close friend or somebody older than you who had more understanding, you were lost. I would share everything with Yakov. That's how we tried to help each other survive. For many, though life was a losing battle. When too many slave workers died, the Germans needed new ones and brought people in from camps such as Plashov and Auschwitz. After the war, I read that it wasn't so easy for the Nazis to keep up the supply of slave laborers coming into the work camps to restock the ones who were dying and being murdered. Yet somehow they managed. But in November 1943, when the people from Plashov came, they brought typhoid with them. I caught it. I didn't want to go to the infirmary because I knew that if I did, there was a chance I wouldn't come back. So I went to work sick, and my friends hauled me to the firing range and dragged me back every day. With this type of typhoid, there is one crisis day when you get a very high fever, and if you break through the fever, there's a chance you might survive. That day, I was so sick, I couldn't even walk. 
There was no way I could make it to work. My friends put me on a top bunk in the barracks and covered me with straw. With God's help, they said, they won't see you there and take you to the infirmary. Every day after the work details had left, the Jewish policemen would come to the barracks to make sure they were empty and that everyone had gone to work. They always brought with them an Ukrainian with a rifle to add incentive for those who weren't willing or able to go to work. The day I was lying there in the top bunk, a Jewish policeman and a Ukrainian guard came to inspect my barracks. It was my luck that the Ukrainian waited at the door. Maybe he wasn't too keen on going inside because of the typhoid epidemic. The Jewish policeman came in and checked every row of bunks, standing on the bottom one and looking up into the two bunks above. At my row, he stepped onto the bottom bunk and looked straight into my eyes. Then he shouted, Keiner da! Nobody's there! and walked back to the door. They both left, closing the door behind them. That Jewish policeman risked his own life by saving mine that day, Providence. The next day, either again because of Providence or because of cats, I was switched to the night shift to work inside with the Jewish women, supplying them with the sacks of black powder to put into the bullets that they were making. The women knew I was ill, and so Hayang I was, and they took care of me. They told me not to do any work, to sit and recover instead, and they gave me a signal to begin work when one of the foremen was coming, especially the cruel Jewish foreman who we called the Grosse Avram, Big Avram. Everyone was afraid of him. I would stop again and rest as soon as the foreman left. One experience I will never forget is that one of the women brought me an apple. I don't know where she got it. An apple was unheard of, and I had never seen or had one in the Warsaw Ghetto. To get an apple in a concentration camp was incredible. She simply approached me and said, Here, Pinek, have an apple. I ate the apple, and you can't even imagine the way that apple tasted to me. I have never forgotten this. To this day, apples are the fruit I like best because of one apple that the Jewish woman gave me in Skarzysko. Food was always an issue in Skarzysko. The official rations were as follows. In the morning, we got what they called coffee. It was made out of acorns or leaves, perhaps, and it looked like dirty water, but we drank it anyways because it was hot. At lunchtime, we got soup, and depending on how much the Jewish policeman liked you, he either got from the top, which was mainly water, or from the bottom, where if you were lucky, you got a bit of horse meat or some rotten potatoes or beets as well. In the evenings, the Ukrainians would bring in bread from the bakery, and no matter what the rations were, they would sell some of the bread on the way to the barracks. So depending on how much bread there was, when they got to you, or who and how decent the Ukrainians were, you never knew how big a piece of bread you were going to get. 
one day they would divide it each loaf by eight, and the next day it could be divided by twelve, depending on who was cutting it. I think we got another soup or coffee in the evening. In spite of that little extra bread or thicker soup I would get from cats, I was skeletal. Even cats couldn't fatten me up. In January 1944, the food situation improved a little. The Nazis couldn't replace people the way they had in earlier years and realized the Jews they had were all the Jews they were going to get. In November 1943, the SS had gone on a killing spree. After the uprising in the Sobibor camp, as well as in other places, Himmler decided that it was time to execute the final solution, and he devised a plan to kill all the Jews in the SS-administered camps of the Lublin district of Poland, specifically in the concentration camps of Majdanek and the forced labor camps of Travniki and Poniatowa. Action earned the fest. Operation Harvest Festival was the code name the Germans gave to this operation. On November 3, 1943, the operation began at dawn, and by the end of the next day, approximately 42,000 Jews had been murdered. But all the factory camps like ours were officially under the administration of the Wehrmacht, not the SS. Since Hasak paid the SS in Radom five zloty per day for each male laborer and four zloty a day for every woman, the Wehrmacht needed us and didn't want us killed, so we were protected from that action. However, this slaughter made it impossible for the Nazi authorities to give our camp any more Jews, and a commission was sent to our camp to see how they could improve our rations so we could work harder and longer. After that, a loaf was divided into only four portions, and the soup was much better. The rations improved, not because they wanted to help us, but because without us they couldn't supply the army with the ammunition they so desperately needed. By then, the Poles were mostly gone, some taken to Germany to work, and the others in hiding or having gone to the partisans. They needed Jews. When I recovered from typhoid, I was switched back to the day shift. Katz must have arranged it so that I would mostly work with him, which I did until the end of July, on Erev Tisha B'Av, 1944. The Germans often used the dates of Jewish holidays to commit terror. As an aside, I am often asked how we knew when the holidays were and what date it was in general. Hasidic and religious Jews in the camps counted the days and knew exactly when the holidays were. In my barracks, there were two religious men, one named Friedman and the other Kamionka, a man I knew from the Warsaw Ghetto. In the evenings, after curfew, when the lights went out, Kamjonka would stand by the window with a little Talmud and study or pray by the light of the moon, and he was able to keep track of the days and the months. It's amazing how religious people kept faith in the camp.
Markovichova allowed them this since as bad as she was, she came from a Hasidic family, so I suppose she had some feeling for the rabbis and religious people. Both these men survived the war and became rabbis. On July 31, 1944, when we returned from work, Katz told us that we couldn't go straight back to the barracks. Instead, we had to go to see Commander Schultz, the Nazi commander of Werkse. Schultz was an Austrian police officer and a terrible person. He had lost his arm in World War I, and we called him Handke, little hand, because he had a wooden arm. Whenever anyone said Handke, we knew we had to look busy or make ourselves invisible. That day, he sat at the window in his office, and we all had to walk by him and give him our names. As we did, he marked a tick beside each name. When everybody had gone past his window, they took us back to the barracks and gave us whatever food we were entitled to. The next morning, we did not go to work. An appeal was called. SS guards with machine guns surrounded the camp. Commander Schultz appeared and announced that the camp was being evacuated and we were all going to a new camp. Those whose names were called would be going by train, but since there weren't enough train cars for everybody, those whose names were not called would have to walk there. Then he started calling out names. I heard the name of my best friend Yakov and then mine. We both went to the area where the others whose names had been called were and stood there side by side. There was a woman doctor working in the infirmary who was good friends with Schultz, always walking around the camp with him. Prisoners had mentioned to me that she took care of the medical needs of the Ukrainian families. Her mother was in the camp with her, and when Schultz called out her mother's name but not her own, she ran to him, grabbed his sleeve, and begged him to go with her mother. He continued what he was doing, not paying any attention to her, but she wouldn't let go of his sleeve. The next thing we knew, he had taken out his revolver and shot the mother, then he shot the doctor. Those of us who had been told to stand aside noticed that all the people with us were the ones who looked yellow and were wearing rags like Yakov and I were. We soon realized that this was a selection for the forest not a train ride to a new camp. We started running. I saw a chest on the ground where dead bodies were being kept until enough were collected to be taken out of the camp and disposed of in the forest. I jumped into the chest but was so terrified in there with the dead bodies that I leapt out, crawled under the barracks and burrowed myself into the ground like an animal. For years after the war, I didn't know if I remembered this incident correctly. Was there really such a chest, or had I been so traumatized that I envisioned it? My memory was confirmed when, after the war, I read the book Death Comes in Yellow by Felicia Caray, who writes about this chest. Once everyone was running, the SS, the Ukrainians, and the Jewish police were ordered to round us all up for a new appeal. 
Katz found me under the barracks and said that he would help me. He took me to the police barracks and had me take off all my rags, including my paper and wire shoes. He then washed me and combed my hair and applied one of his wife's old lipsticks onto my cheeks to give me color. Then he gave me a complete set of proper clothes, including high boots like the police wore, a jacket and a hat. As he sent me out, he said, Schultz is going to have another selection. He's got about 500 names on his list to kill. He's going to find that 500 people regardless of who is on that list. That's how they work. Maybe with God's help, you will survive. I went back out and got into the line, which was now being heavily guarded. Nobody wanted to be at the front of the line, where it would be easy for them to be picked out. So the older prisoners pushed the youngsters to the front. I was standing in the front row beside my friend Yakov, who was still wearing his rags, just like the one I had been wearing earlier. Then Schultz went from row to row and pulled people out. Those people were ordered to go to the other side, where they were surrounded and heavily guarded by Jewish police and Ukrainian guards. When he came to us, he walked past Yakov and stopped in front of me. I was shivering and so afraid that he would remember me or that he didn't like me for some reason. He looked at me for what seemed like an eternity, and I was sure he was going to take me out. But then he grabbed Yakov, pulled him out of the line, and pushed him towards a policeman who came and took him. Then he continued on. I watched in horror as they pushed Yakov into the circle with all the condemned men. When they had their quota of 500, they took all those prisoners away to their death. After the appeal, the rest of us were taken to the trains. I have read that a total of 6,500 prisoners were evacuated from Skarzysko that day. As for Yakov, I grieved that boy for years and years. I grieved him more than I did for my own family. I had nightmares about him and couldn't get over the fact that he was my korban, the sacrificial lamb who had been taken in my place and murdered instead of me. After the war, I learned that Markovichova, who was wealthy and on good terms to the Ukrainian guards and the Nazis as well, had found out that the camp would be evacuated on August 1, 1944. She decided to free herself and her family the night before by bribing Schultz, the commander. Some of the Jewish policemen and others in the administration found out what she was planning and threatened that if she didn't include them in the escape, they would tell everyone of her plan and she wouldn't get out either. At two in the morning, the Ukrainian guards abandoned their stations, allowing Markovichova and those fleeing with her to cut huge holes in the barbed wire so they could all escape. As they all ran into the forest, the guards reappeared and began shooting. Markovichova had been betrayed. Of the 250 or more who tried to escape, most were caught and killed, including Markovichova herself. 
Katz, too, was one of those who died that night. Some did manage to get away into the forest where they were then killed by Polish partisans, but one of the people who survived was Markovichova's mother. She was a decent person, and whenever anyone in the camp was in trouble with the police, she would intercede on their behalf. That night, the mother ran the forest and found a farmer she knew from before the war who saved her. Perhaps she survived because of all the good she had done. After the war, there was a huge immigration of Jews to Paris. Someone from Sarzysko saw Markovichova's mother on the street, and she recounted the story of how she survived.